Welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, a place where we ask big questions of small things as we gather around the table with makers, thinkers, and doers. So grab your favorite drink, pull up a chair, and join us. And now, here are your hosts, Caben Kramer and Chris Quant. So Chris, how are you enjoying this conversation on death? <laughs> wow. I, Caben, I, I, I want to go to bed and kind of curl up in a ball and maybe not get up for a few days. Uh, the, the conversation with Casey is, it's so interesting to, to hear her life experience and to hear losing her mother at such a young age and not only the emotional, but the physical toll that took on her person, on her being, but then to hear her talk about what's come on the other side of that trauma. Uh, and mm-hmm. as I was listening to the episode, I was looking, or I, I was I was making notes of words that she mentioned that have never been even in my presence, like social distancing over a year, like that, that word never existed in right. my life before. New, new lexicon. New lexicon. Yeah, Thank new you. words here. Yeah. So words like, so, so lay it on me. Yeah. yeah. What, what are these words? Words like death companion and mm. death cafe, mm. vigil doula, mm. right? And, and big feelings. Uh, as our listeners are going through this episode and it is definitely don't, I, I hope I didn't put anybody off to listen to this because it is, it is so real and so good, especially mm-hmm. if you're in a spot where, where grief might be very present for you. And that doesn't even have to be in the death of a person. There, there's a lot of things that can die. There could, there could be a, yeah. a, a dream. Um, so many things that, that can happen. That's not just an actual physical death. Uh, but, but listen to the wisdom uh, that comes from yeah. her, uh, because yeah. it is, it is raw. It is real. It, I feel like there's so much that's untapped, Caven, that you help to mm-hmm. to help bubble up to the surface. That even as she's learning to step into this this role, an, an actual a yeah. death companion, I learned right. is an actual right. thing. <laughs> well, yeah, and and you know because of course she does share her story, and it is really such a powerful story. And then she just kind of guided me and, and, and really all of us then, you know, kind of by proxy into this deeper understanding and way of thinking about the world and of life. And so it's a powerful biography to hear. And it's like got the companion workbook to go with it mm-hmm. <laughs> of like here, you know, th- there's just so much wisdom, like you were saying, so much wisdom in this episode. Yeah, there, there's something here for everyone. Yeah, and, and give us a quick intro of, of, of Casey, just uh, who she is and how you how we know her and, and kind of well, what she's so doing. On it, the, yeah, this is kind of what, what I love about Instagram. Um, I am all up in my DMs all the time. Anyone who's DM'd me on, on Instagram knows that like I love replying to your DM. Um, and so way back in April, Casey was one of the people who just jumped in our DMs when things kind of went crazy with Sharon Says So and, mm-hmm. and our walnuts and... I was talking about something on the farm and I, I don't even remember what. And she just wrote back and was like, Hey, I'm, I'm really glad you're talking about this. Like, this is something that I'm actually going even further into. And and by being a death companion, I'm like, Oh, tell me more. Wow. Um, so we just set up a time and I was like, Hey, look, I've got this podcast I'm doing. Like I would, I just, I want, 
I don't know anything about you and I want to know everything about you. So let's just sit down. Let's talk. And, and so this interview that you're about to hear is the first time that we've ever actually spoken. And and so, yeah, it's just it's very fresh. It's very new. You know, a lot of the people that we have on the podcast, I've had some other connection to through life, some other kind of relationship. So I know a little bit about maybe what we're getting. And mm-hmm. um, with Casey, it was really fun just to kind of go in. Just I, I don't know anything more than you do as a listener. Um, and so let's just unpack what that is and what it means. Let's all learn together. So that's kind of how we know each other. And she does a, a good introduction of herself. But yeah, she's over on the East Coast, right? So we're about as far away across the country as we can get from each other. And and that's also kind of representative of our lives too, right? Like we're, we're just coming at life from these very different perspectives, but it's also really beautiful and good, right? And I have a good life in California. She has a good life in New York. And, yeah. and same way, like in our worldviews and our lifestyles and our pursuits, like it's still good. And it's also very different from each other. And that was really fun to, to have together at the table as well. Yeah. And so much, so much good stuff there. So I say, let's, let's step out of the way and let's, let's actually let Casey uh, do the talking here and jump right in. Um, okay. As we get into it here a little bit, I'm, I'm curious, this might be a launching point. It might not be. I noticed that you have a tattoo on your arm, mm-hmm. on this arm right here. This one? Um, yeah. What does that, what does that say? That's actually a very, that's very funny that you asked about that because okay. I had an interesting thing happen with this tattoo and it, it is a launching point. Perfect. Look <laughs> so, at that. Tattoos so, are always great stories. So this says I am because you are, and okay. this is in honor of my mom. Mm. Um, who passed away when I was 18 of lung cancer. And it's also in honor of my daughter. So it's, I am because you are, I am your daughter because you are my mother and I am your mother because you are my daughter. So it's been kind of, it's kind of like a generational connection honoring like my mom's presence. And, you know, even though she's not here and honoring my motherhood and her motherhood and my daughter and all of that. And it's just, it's bizarre that you bring that up because so I live in a um, two family home. I'm up on the second floor and recently a new tenant moved in downstairs and she's probably in her mid twenties. She's really nice. When she first moved in, my daughter and I like baked her cookies and welcomed her to the neighborhood. And we've kind of been getting to know her a little bit. And last week, you know, she texted me and she was like, Oh, can you guys come downstairs? I just want to give you a few things just to say thank you for like being so welcoming. She also had like a new kitten she wanted us to meet. Mm-hmm. Um, so she gave us some cookies. She gave me a, a toy for the dog. We met the kitten and she looked at my arm and she's like, wait, what does your arm say? I told her and she lifts up her arm and in the same spot on her arm, she has the same exact tattoo no not not only does she have the same exact tattoo she has it because her mother passed away when she was 13 oh my gosh like what are the odds not only that we have those same tattoos but for the same reason and that we live in the same house whoa like the odds of that (laughs) Mm -hmm. that is cool and crazy and like okay what what more than human connection is going on here? Because that is awesome. Yeah. Your your mother passing away is very tragic. Mm-hmm. And it's also something that's really shaped you quite a bit. And that's kind of what led to us texting back and forth over Instagram, right? As we were mm-hmm. having this conversation about life and death and grief and truth and seeking presence and meaning in the midst of all of that. 
Um, and I think what you're bringing into the world is just really beautiful and um, good and should be shared with more of the world, um, which is why I'm excited to have this conversation. So a- as you're thinking about that, This is obviously a very public conversation, so I want to respect a lot of the privacy, but just as much as you want to talk about kind of your journey and your story to kind of become the person you are now, I would love to hear that. Sure. So I grew up on Long Island. I was born here in Setauket, a couple towns over. My dad was a pediatrician. My mom was an art librarian, and I had an older brother, and um, had a very happy, privileged life. And when my, when I turned seven and my brother was eight, my mom was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. She was 38. She never smoked. There was no reason Mm -hmm. for her to have lung cancer. There was no like exposures. There was no, you know, nothing, nothing in her life would have led her to have lung cancer. It just was kind of this freak thing that happened. And um, at the time they told her that she had six months to a year to live. And she was like, "Um, no, (laughs) I've got (laughs) two young kids. I'm going to watch them grow up. And with like sheer will and force, she lived her 11 years. Um, Those 11 years were amazing, painful, Hmm. and everything in between. And in that time, you know, she had experimental procedures, experimental drugs. She had her one of her lungs taken out along with multiple ribs, like the um, part of the lining of the heart, part of her diaphragm, like very, she was the 11th person to have that procedure and survive. Um, She had multiple types types of chemo and radiation. Um, She had very short periods of remission, but for most of those 11 years, she was sick. Not only did she survive for 11 years, she became the number one advocate for lung cancer She created a um, foundation that raised, I think, like half a million dollars for lung cancer research. She wrote a book. She co-authored a book, 100 Questions and Answers about Lung Cancer. She was featured in a lot of like, you know, newspapers and magazines. And she um, she became the face of lung cancer because she was really angry about this stigma that came along with lung cancer. Because the first question she always got was, did you smoke? And she's like, that doesn't matter. I'm a human. I'm a patient. I deserve the same care no matter what. And that was kind of her big thing. And there was no, when she was diagnosed, there was no information available. So, but for me, you know, as a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, you know, as a kid and for my brother too, um, growing up with a sick mom, it kind of pulled the rug out from underneath us, you know, and, and our whole lives revolved around her illness, which you know, I am so grateful that we had those 11 years. And also for those 11 years, we were stuck in anticipatory grief because it was like, we didn't, you know, we didn't know how long she would have at different points. And there was touch and go moments and everything was based on her illness and and, Mm. um, centered on that. So, you know, a lot of my childhood was kind of taken for me as best, you know, and my parents did, you know, the best that they could to mitigate that. But sure. But how much can you really do that? You're still caught in a complex web of reality. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and also, you know, teenage years when like a mother daughter are supposed to do the like pulling away and coming back together, I had so much guilt. Um, Mm -hmm. That's when she was kind of like actively getting worse and then ended Mm -hmm. up dying when I was 18. 
and I really struggled. I really struggled. So, you know, she died when I was 18. And then my life kind of, I mean, through my teenage years, I really struggled. I had been diagnosed with like anxiety and depression and struggled with self-harm. And, you know, I really, I, I really struggled to cope, but after she passed away, I really, I remember, I want to say like three or four months after she passed away, I remember trying to go to like a bereavement group. I went to the first session and I remember it was the first time. Oh, let me back up to when she was sick. I remember I tried to start like a support group in school or in my community for kids or teenagers who had parents or family members with terminal illness, with illness, with chronic illness. And it never kind of got going. I had the support of like local therapists and whatever, but there, for whatever reason, it never got going because I always felt just outside of everything else. I never felt Mm. understood. I felt um, really different from everybody else. And then after she died, I went to the, this first session of um, a bereavement support group. And it was the first time that I really felt understood. I was with Mm. a group of people who had gone through losses that were similar or not so similar to mine, but, but had experienced loss and were in active grief. And I remember just like feeling like this was going to be the thing that really helped me. And at the end of that session, I remember saying that I couldn't make it to like the last group. It was like an eight session group. And they told me I couldn't come back. And I remember I was 18. I was in active grief and they didn't, And I, you know, they didn't then offer me a different session or a therapist, you know, there was no Mm. mitigating that. And for me that I recognize now the things I could have done, but I also was, I didn't know any better, but But that changed the trajectory. You know, I was like, screw this. Like I'm never going to be understood. Mm. And for the next decade, I ran from my grief. And that, you know, I didn't want, I couldn't, I couldn't face it. You know, I really couldn't face it. It was, it was too big. I really, um, it almost took me out more than once. Um, I've struggled with mental illness. I've struggled with addiction. And I think a lot of that has to do with, I don't think it's all caused by complicated grief, but I think it's complicated by the grief that I experienced and um, was unable to face and get the support that I needed. And I think also, you know, I knew, I think as my mom was dying, when we had hospice people in the house who were wonderful, I knew that I was meant to do that work in some way. But I also knew after she died, when I was running from my own grief, that there was no way that I could do that work until I had started, at least started to heal from my own grief. And was, I was there a level it, of that that was conscious? Were you consciously aware of that choice? Not right away. Okay. I think probably like five years in, maybe I started yeah. to become aware of that. But I think I was yeah. too much of a mess to even be, you know, mm. I, I tried to do all the things at first, you know, like I wanted to go back to, I tried to go back to school multiple times. I dropped out. Mm. I ended up in and out of psych wards. I was, mm. you know, like I was a really, I really struggled. I was Mm. kind of, I had a really, really hard time. And in the midst of that, I had my daughter when I was 21. I also had my own struggle with 
a very serious neurologic disease that left me mm-hmm. disabled and on disability and at points unable to walk and take care of myself. So I mm-hmm. faced my own mortality, you know, so I was dealing mm-hmm. with grief on like so many different levels, <sighs> mental illness, physical disability, and I desperately just wanted to help people. But I also like clearly on some level knew that I couldn't do that until I dealt with some stuff myself. Yeah, but for yeah. years, like I was, you know, I was so afraid to face those feelings. I, yeah. you know, they almost took me out a couple of times and, and I'm grateful they didn't because I yeah. know, I know I'm a person that is very good at making people feel heard and understood and seen in their hardest moments. I know that about myself. And I don't think I could have said that years ago. I think I knew that deep down, but I, you know, I didn't have the skills or the understanding. And I do know this now, but I also, you know, the thing that I have learned and I'm very aware of now is like the concept of causing harm and understanding that I'm not a person that's going to do no harm. I don't think humans are able to do no harm. I want to do the least amount of harm as possible. And if I do harm, I want to be aware. I want to be accountable. I want to be responsible. And I want to not repeat those things that cause that same kind of harm. And I don't think I had those. I didn't have those, that awareness, you know, prior to this. And that's something that I am very intentional about. And it's why I'm taking my time shifting this into a more professional capacity because mm-hmm. because I also know how I was harmed. I'm careful not to project that either, but um, I think it's really important to to take that into account. Casey, I mean, first of all, I'm so glad you're here, and I and I don't I don't I don't just mean here on this podcast, although I'm grateful for that, but I mean here on this earth. I am. Your story is bursting with the raw material of life. And it's an important story to have in this world. And so I'm glad that you're here to tell it. And I'm thankful that you've made it to today and that you have taken some time because it sounds like your body was crying out for a long time to be healed and cared for and listened to and made to feel safe. And and very rightly and, and understandably, you didn't feel like the world was a place to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And and now And now you're in a place where when you say you want to make someone feel safe, that means something deeper than just the rest of us saying it because you've lived for so long in a place where you didn't feel safe. Hmm. Um, and you, you understand you have access to that in a way that many, many people don't. So, wow, who you are, the essence of you, as it's been forged in so much anguish and fire, is, is incredible and so valuable to this world. So I'm glad you're here. So as you've been going through this personal crucible of formation and understanding who you are in this world and the shape of your purpose and, and what gets you up in the morning and all that stuff, it's led you into a field that I don't think most people in grade school write down on the dream sheet of like what they (laughs) want to do. Um, but it might be one of the most important things for our culture and society right now. Mm. And, and that's is you're, you're in process of becoming, um, I don't even know the right word. So help me out. Death participant, death worker. What, how, how would you say that? 
So death worker is kind of like an umbrella okay. term, death companion, death worker. Some people refer to it as death doula. I, mm. you know, death worker, death companion is what I identify with. So. Okay. With, with no context, that could sound like it means a lot of things. <laughs> uh, it, it, it could sound euphemistic. It could sound opportunistic. It could sound very meaningful and profound, which I think it is. So can you just unpack what does that mean Maybe even just a little bit technically, what does it mean to be a death companion? And then what does it mean for you? So, I mean, it actually means very different things to different people. It's a, it's an umbrella term and there's a whole spectrum. Death companions are really the bridge between healthcare and death care. Hmm. They help bridge that whole system, but they can go anywhere from like legacy planning to vigil doulas, to grief support, and anywhere in between. And there are some people who work within that whole spectrum. There are some people who work specifically in one part of that spectrum, you know, that also people who work in hospice would be considered death workers, you know, that kind of thing. But it's a it's a spectrum and different people fall in different places on that spectrum. And some have a larger section and some have a smaller more specific section so and then for me and I think this is where I'm at is figuring out where I fit on that spectrum because I know I belong on the spectrum I've known I've belonged on the spectrum you know I've taken I just took a course through the school of American thanatology with Colin Perry who's amazing you should check out she you should check her out she's fantastic uh so I'm certified as a death companioning initiate. We, I took a crash course and, and a lot of the information, like any of the technical information that I'm telling you, was directly from her. So I just took that course. I'm also taking a course through the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation, Compassionate Bereavement Approaches, during at my local hospice, which is, I just started recently and that's been really amazing. Just got my foot in the door there too. And then I'm trying to figure out where I fit in the spectrum because mm-hmm. There's a lot of different ways that it can work for different people. And sometimes people shift throughout their life, you know, depending on what their needs sure. are. So, sure. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like there's, as, as you're talking to this and I'm receiving it, it sounds like there's some elements of death care that focus on those, on the community around the person or entity mm-hmm. or group going through death. Mm-hmm. There's another element that focuses on the individual themselves. Mm-hmm. And then maybe there's another element that focuses more on the systemic economical side of things, the more kind of finance side of things. It's this totalizing impact, right? Right. To give you like a more specific definition of like a death companion, it's somebody who provides non-medical and non-judgmental support through the loss journey. And um, they can also provide, oh, they support, um, any team members, they support family, they make referrals and recommendations, and they can also provide community education. Mm-hmm. So there can be co- kind of more specific support around a client and their family who are going through a loss or grief journey. And then there are also companions who educate community. They hold mm-hmm. things called um, death, cafe- death cafes where com- people come and talk about death or they hold information session, you know, all sorts of things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is such a universal experience, Mm -hmm. right? The universal experience. 
And yet it's so under the covers of, of culture. And it's not, as you're describing this, I'm like, wow, I've never even heard of a death cafe, but I'm sure if I took some time to find one, there's probably one within driving distance of me mm-hmm. at some point in the next month. And, and yet it's just so submerged. Is that conscious on the part of the community because it's such an intimate experience or is that subconsciously reacting to kind of culture's abrasion to death? What, what's, what's going on there? Do you know? That's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of it is cultural, you know, like I think, you know, and I think a lot about this and I think about my interactions even on a daily basis that don't even have to do with death. And a lot of people struggle with big feelings. This is what Mm. I talked to my daughter about, like big, hard feelings, feelings that feel uncomfortable. And a lot of people tend to not want to talk about those. And that's kind of a cultural thing. That's you know, as Americans, we're taught to just like shove things aside and pretend we're okay and put on a face or a mask, you know, whatever it is. And I think, you know, death is one of those things that brings up all the hard feelings. Mm. <laughs> it brings up all of them, you know, and, yeah. and it looks different for, for people, but it's messy and it's sad mm. and it's, you know, everything in between and makes you face things. Well, sometimes, you know, and there's, you know, a big element of avoidance, you know, in our culture, avoid, avoid, avoid. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with this. And even in my my own experience, I know what that's like. Mm -hmm. I don't want to deal with this. And I think also, you know, some of that is culture. Some of that is like not enough education you know, through my own experience, understanding, I didn't understand that my feelings wouldn't kill me. That literally was not something I understood, you know, and then just support, access to support. Yeah, That's, you know, there's so many levels to it. So like, there's the culture, there's access, there's, there's support, there's, you know, there's all these different levels. And Mm -hmm. death is really, you know, it's just a taboo, a taboo subject. But death is, universal it's inescapable you know like it happens to all of us literally cannot prevent it and we don't know when it's going to happen at any point so you know it's it's interesting that it's so taboo to talk about because literally it will happen to all of us i have some thoughts on why it's taboo but i'm curious as someone who has lived much closer to it Mm -hmm. so there's the avoidance piece and as you're talking about that, what, what was coming into my consciousness as you were saying that was th- the avoidance piece seems to be a survival tactic, mm-hmm. but it, it just plays out as, as disrespect for yourself and your own human needs, then also for a community in grief, right? In, in wider culture. So there's that piece that kind of makes it taboo because we're all wired to avoidance, but are there other elements that you've thought about that you say, yeah, actually it's kind of this belief about our culture or this lever in our economics or this religious structure, whatever it is that leads to death being so taboo. So I think fear is a huge, huge aspect. And actually something I learned is that studies show that the more religious you are, the more likely it is you are to be afraid of dying. Mm-hmm. So I think religion plays a big part in that. And as somebody, I am not religious, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's interesting, you know, I've had my own fears around people in my life dying. Um, I don't personally have a lot of fears around my own death. It was interesting to kind of dive into that a little bit, but I don't have my own personal like fears about 
you know, God or religion when it comes mm -hmm. to death, but hearing other people's experiences around that, um, that definitely rings true. I would yeah. be interested to, to hear your thoughts on that too. Well, I, I don't, I, I, I have this working theory and <clears throat> I, I might end up doing a separate podcast on it at some point or whatever, but this idea that like, there's, there's pretty much just a handful of things that every human has done right from the very first human to the very last human, everyone will eat sex and death, right? Like those three things are just these very visceral primordial human experiences. Mm -hmm. And I, I've been thinking about those three in particular for two reasons. One, because I read a, a neurobiology study that talked about how when engaged in any one of those three things, well, that is in an honorable way, in a way of presence and attentiveness, your body forgets about time. Mm. When you're eating a good meal, when you're having good sex, mm. when you're beside someone on the journey of death, um, or when you're going through that journey yourself, time as a construct evaporates because there's something about these three things that is stronger than time, yeah. that is deeper than time. It's more human than time. And I also think about it because I've been reflecting on my own religious experiences because I grew up very religious and moving out of that into opener space, more open spaces. And I think about, you know, the, the way that the church structures its sacraments are all around food, sex and death. Um, I, I, I really want to explore it more, um, cause I think there's a lot there, this idea of trying to bring these frightfully human experiences into some kind of sanctified space that we can say now they're okay. Mm -hmm. Right. So we bring marriage in to make sex. Okay. We bring communion in to make food now. Okay. We bring baptism and, and funerals in to make death now. Okay. And so we build these rituals around these primordially human embodiments. Mm -hmm. And and so I, I think that's one. And, and sex and death are two things that religion is still really repressed in, right? Mm -hmm. Food, they, they seem to be okay with. <laughs> <laughs> but, but sex and death, they haven't really put a finger on yet. But th there's this, ele uh, this uh, another element in death for me that is really interesting is death seems to conflict with our economic models of prosperity because... When we think of, of economic prosperity, we think of constant growth mm. where death is not in the picture. Companies cannot die. Companies are eternal. Literally in the charter of corporations, they are in perpetuity, right? Um, it wasn't until, and I forget the name of, it was one of the industrialists, one of the ultra wealthy industrialists in, in the industrial revolution wrote into his will, if I die. And it was the first time that a human being ever had the absolute whatever to presume that they may not experience death. But it was driven from this capitalistic model of death is the enemy, a loss of profits, an end of function, a, a, a closing of the cycle is the absolute enemy of progress. When nature tells us something very different. And I've had the privilege of spending some time in, in other parts of the world. And in India in particular, I learned more about death than I have maybe anywhere else. And it's not because anyone taught me. It's because I was participating in a culture that had just such a radically different relationship to death than my culture did. And it, that in those, in those months there opened my eyes more than anything else to say, wow, death is so natural so universal and so deeply misunderstood mm -hmm. 
And it's, you know, even, even to the point where I, I have friends in India who will still send me pictures on WhatsApp of dead bodies showing faces and nudity of dead bodies. And for them, it's not a moment of disrespect, right? And in our culture, we hide it. We hide it from the news screens. We hide it in funerals. Everywhere we go, we're trying to hide and create subterfuge around death. Mm -hmm. And, And we think we do that as a way to honor the sacredness of life. But all we're doing is we're actually diminishing our ability to appreciate the value of life because we're not looking at that. You know, I even had a conversation kind of during the height of the summer outbreak of COVID last year. With someone, I said, you know, I bet you if we treated this pandemic like other countries pre- treat mass pandemics, I bet if we had piles of dead bodies in the middle of the street burning, we would treat this pandemic differently. Mm. If those 500,000 people who died, if instead of hiding them away mm. as a way to honor them, if they became a part of the community conversation in their death, we would have a very different relationship to life. Yep. But I, I just want to get... I want to get back into your thoughts because you live and breathe this. And so everything you say is automatically full of more wisdom than anything I have to say because you're in the middle of it. Because you are spending your day beginning to end engaging with and thinking about and processing emotions around death. Are you in a place where that activity is life-giving in this season? Is it as exhausting and draining as it sounds to me? And if so, how do you manage your own self-care in this? Or just kind of where are you at in that process? So, you know, I'm not currently, I'm working more, I've mostly been doing like phone calls with bereaved people. I've gone to the hospice house um, a handful of times. I'm just starting to kind of ramp up on these things. I'm going to start working actively with with people who are in that process of dying um, more actively as like restrictions are lessening. There's more ability to be able to start to be able to do that in person. Again, for me, when I step into the hospice house that I'm volunteering at, I feel full. (laughs) Mm. Um, And I know like I have to, to manage um, and make sure I don't, I have to manage my compassion fatigue and things like that. And and it's not something I can do every day. That's also, you know, I do other stuff. I have a part-time job in healthcare and I can't do this full-time yet. You know, that's something that, that I'm trying to figure out how to mitigate, but I, I will, I will do this full-time because, and I, I've, I've talked to a couple friends about this too. I know that most people step into a hospice and that's not where they want to be and probably feel drained after that. And for me, um, stepping into that house makes me feel so aligned and helps me realize that I'm in the right place doing what Mm. I'm doing. And I think, you know, also as somebody who struggled so long with my own grief, with um, my own mental illness, with also my own disability and not being able to work or feel valuable in the ways that I like to contribute, being able to like fulfill a purpose that aligns with what I want and what um, Mm. I can give is something that fills me up but you know realistically it's it is some it is a a job that's draining you know and i think that's what's also so important and amazing about the fact that death companions can work on this spectrum so that at any point you know if you're working in a specific point if you're you know as working as a vigil doula and that becomes 
you become burned out from that, you can kind of switch over to like educating the community or you can do something, you know, there's, there's ways to kind of mitigate that burnout or you can do that ahead of time where you only do X this amount of time per month or, you know, but that takes trial and error too, you know, and I'm just kind of beginning to figure that out for myself. And, you know, that's, I think will take a lot of mentorship and guidance. And I have some good people in my community that, you know, counting on and have been wonderful and helpful to guide me through this process. So, yeah. yeah. So what's, it doesn't even just have to be one thing, but maybe something that's kind of top of mind that you wish that everyone listening to this knew about going through the journey of death or going through it with someone as a companion what is it that you wish that more people knew that you see most people lacking? Hmm. That's a good question. Hmm, I gotta think about that one. I think this is something that, you know, and this is something that was stressed to us in one of the courses I took. And, and I think I had an understanding of this beforehand, but I don't want to like take her word. So as Cole and Perry taught us about this is to meet people where they are. As somebody is dying or somebody's family member is dying, you don't want to push your agenda on them. Mm. You know, like I may be working with somebody who has very different values or beliefs than I do, or I may have an idea that may seem great to me, or I might want their death to look a certain way, or I may have, mm. you know, it's their death. Yeah. Can you unpack that a little bit? When you say you you might want their death to look a certain way, un- unspool that for us a little bit. What does that mean to you? So I'll go back to my experience um, with my mom, because I think that's the best way that I can describe this. Somebody's death, a good death to the person who's dying may be very traumatic for the people around them. Mm. So my mom had a beautiful death. Mm. It was exactly what she wanted. She was surrounded by family um, in the weeks leading up to her death. My grandparents moved into our house. My uncle did. Um, We had hospice care and we all just took turns taking care of her. Hmm. And in a lot of ways that was beautiful for us, but it was also traumatic, you know, like having my mom die in the house. I was happy for her. And also as an 18 year old, I wanted nothing to do with it, but also everything to do with it, you know, like all the things. And she leading up to her death talked about how those weeks were the best weeks of her life. Talk about Hmm. something beautiful and what a privilege not everybody gets that privilege to have a good death. So over time, I've come to recognize and I have a lot of peace because my mom was able to have that good death. But I struggled because Mm. I had to witness that. Mm. (laughs) And it was very painful for me and for my grandparents, you know, for all of us. Mm -hmm. And I struggled with my own emotions with my family and I didn't want anybody around, you know, so... And that wasn't even super traumatic in terms of comparing other things. But for me, that was a lot harder than it was for my mom. You know, she went the way she wanted to go. Hmm. And then as somebody who was outside of that, a hospice worker or a nurse, whoever was coming into the house could have said like, well, you guys aren't doing this the right way. And, you know, you guys Hmm. should be taking these shifts and the grandparents should be staying outside the house and this and X, Hmm. Y, and Z. And we should be trying to feed her you know, nutrition at this time and more feet, whatever it is, Mm. but that wasn't, you know, that's not appropriate. And that would have Mm. been, that would have been very traumatic, you know, instead the people who are coming to help us 
just helped us the way we wanted to be helped, the way my mom wanted to be helped. And that's what it's about. And that's what um, walking somebody through their death, through dying, through all of, through their grief looks like is meeting them where they are at. And there, there can be boundaries around that. If there's something I'm not comfortable with, I can ask somebody else to step in. I can yeah. say I'm not comfortable with something, but it's sure. not appropriate for me to put my needs ahead of the person who I'm serving. And yeah. that's coming back to that, what I talked about in the beginning, harm, recognizing where I would do harm and where I'm not going to do harm and what, you know, where um, it's appropriate for me to serve and where it's not. And, and I think you said something really meaningful as you were relating your story. So you're describing yourself as real, still, still very much a young person, right? An 18 year old. Um, I remember being 18. I thought I ruled the world and knew everything there was to know. And um, <laughs> now I realize just how tender and, and forming I still was in that time. And he talked about how you were witness to it, right? You were a witness to your mother's death. And there's a something right about a good death that involves presence, right? And and there's something about bearing witness or being a witness of meaningful, profound things that asks a lot of our humanity. So I'm wondering, is is there a way to bear witness to death that isn't traumatic? Like, is it is it supposed to be? Like, is that part of the the design of the event is that it is a little bit traumatic for the witnesses or, or is there a way that we can actually build an understanding about death that we can bear witness and presence to it without trauma? Um, I think, I think that's deeply personal, you know, but mm. I think there is a way to mitigate trauma. I think there's not a way to prevent grief, you know? Mm. And I think for me, trauma and grief were so interwoven because of lack of support, like all the things I discussed before. But I think there are ways to, I don't know if you can prevent trauma, you know, from somebody who's experiencing a traumatic event and somebody who they care about or love who is dying. But I think there are ways to, I don't want to say lessen, but lessen the intensity of that trauma with support, with education, with understanding, with which that's what we're lacking. (laughs) You know, that's what we're lacking. You know, if someone feels held through that journey and understood and is provided information, there's a better chance that they will have less complicated grief. Mm. They will have, Mm. they will follow a normal grief pattern Mm. as opposed to things that will extend into their life that will make things more traumatic, you know? So it's hard to say, whether you can prevent trauma, but I think you can prevent less complex outcomes from from traumatic events. Okay, and so my I have two kids. My son is nine and my daughter is seven. Which by the way, how old is your daughter? Nine. Nine. Perfect. That's so fun. I I guarantee you that my son would be friends with her because he (laughs) can't ever have enough friends in the world. So and 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 you said something really wise in there about this intertangling of pain and trauma. And it seems almost colloquial now for us to assume that if we've experienced pain, then we carry trauma, right? Mm-hmm. It seems to be very trendy mm-hmm. to, to, to now everything that causes pain is, is creating trauma. But I also think what you said is wise is that there, there can be some distance between those two things. And particularly if we have some identifiable assists along the way that help us. 
And one of those assists, I think, is how we raise our children in the world. So as a parent myself and you're a parent, how do we help our kids separate out grief from trauma as they begin to move through a complex reality? Hmm. Oh, boy. (laughs) For me, I have just openly talked to my daughter about all the things. I mean, appropriate for her age level. Mm -hmm. I talk to her openly about death, about, you know, since she was young, she's known who her grandma Karen was. And I've talked to her about who she was and what happened to her and my beliefs around that. And she asks questions because I'm so Mm -hmm. open with her. So then something like grief doesn't have to be traumatic in the way Mm -hmm. that it was for me. So, you know, she'll sometimes just bring something up without me having to bring it up. Or if she has a question, she'll ask me like, what did grandma Karen die of? Or can you tell me more about grandma Karen? Or do I look like her? Or do you, Mm. mom, do you get sad about grandma Karen? Or how do you think about her? Or what are the thoughts that you have? You know, she, she asks these questions questions because I've been open with her about them. And I think in general, I talk to her about her emotions and my emotions. And we talk Mm. about big feelings. So like, I think I mentioned that before and how it's normal to have big feelings. And sometimes feelings can feel really overwhelming. And the best thing to do is to, to talk about them. And she's a kid also who, who kept things to herself and tends to be more introverted. And I find, and I'm extroverted. <laughs> so that's like a, an interesting um, thing. But, but the more that I openly talk about it, the more than she will willingly come to me, not on my timetable, on her timetable. Mm. I've found that she comes to me about things that she struggles with more openly as long as I continue to keep that conversation open, even if it's one-sided a lot of the time. Because then when she's ready and her wheels are turning and she's had the time to like do the inside processing, you know, she comes up with the questions and she says, hey, mom, I thought about this or this happened and I was thinking about this and I had this big feeling and what do I do when this, this doesn't feel good or, you know, and then I can have those, then I can dialogue with her about it. But I've like laid that groundwork for her. And I think that's one of the most beautiful and satisfying things to see as a parent is to see her like processing her own emotions, because I really, really struggled with that even at her age. Yeah. Building in that emotional intelligence is yeah. world changing. Yeah. yeah. So and far. and not shying away from hard topics. Just talking I talk to her about all the things things I just make sure that it's relevant at her age level, but I don't yeah. shy away from things that are taboo or hard, you know? Like I just I talk to her, you know? Yeah. Yeah. She's she's a human and she's going to she have is. human experiences. And and she's a competent human, right? right. And yeah, the, the whole a, a attempt at sheltering kids, I think, often backfires. And yeah. so, yeah, dealing with real human things in real human ways, that's really powerful. I want to give you the last word. So what what are things that you want the world to know about <clears throat> that we haven't talked about yet? Oh, geez, that's broad. Well, I was before the call, I was just thinking about I have like a stack of like books that I love. This book, Brave Enough by Cheryl Strait. Do you know Cheryl Strait at all? I yeah I've heard I haven't read the book but so, yeah. she, so this is just a this is a book of her quotes and clearly mm. it's um well loved <laughs> well loved yeah this got me through a lot of 
grief stuff. She lost her mom when she was in her early twenties. And, but I have a lot of, I have a lot of good books that, that deal with grief. And, um, Oh, actually the, the quote I'm going to read is bookmarked with. Hey, look at that. <laughs> you're I'll, I'll just say it for those listening and not on YouTube, but you're holding up our little spread walnuts insert that you got with your delightful little box of walnuts. Yes, it did. So this I, is a quote that has stuck out to me for many years. So it's by Cheryl Strayed in her book, Brave Enough. And it's if as a culture, we don't bear witness to grief, the burden of loss is placed entirely on the bereaved while the rest of us avert our eyes and wait for those in mourning to stop being sad, to let go, to move on, to cheer up. And if they don't, if they have loved too deeply, if they do wake each morning thinking, I cannot continue to live, well, then we pathologize their pain. We call their suffering a disease. We do not help them. We tell them that they need to get help. I just think that that captures so much of how our culture deals with grief. We can do better. Yeah, we can. We can do better. We can do better better by having conversations, by when, you know, when people are grieving, asking them, how can I support you? Asking them about their person, showing up, holding space for people, just being present. And it can be hard and it can be awkward um, and it can bring up feelings for everyone involved, but it's important. It's necessary and it makes us better people. Wow, Casey. I, um, goodness, I've really enjoyed this time, man. It's, Me too. It's, it's the real waters of life. And yeah, there's a lot of truth here in, in, in your person, in your being, and not just in your words. Um, although that too, definitely. So thank you so much for showing up. Thank you for being present. Thank you for your story and your wisdom. Um, it's very meaningful. Thank you for having me. It was really wonderful. And that's our show. If this conversation was meaningful to you, like it was to us, leave a rating and review so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. Thank you for listening. We're so glad you're here and we'd love for you to join the conversation too. But hey, you've heard enough of our voices. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at ofdustanddivinity.com. Partner with us on Patreon and get access to exclusive content, merch, and hidden perks. Go to patreon.com slash ofdustanddivinity. Join our Facebook group, Of Dust and Divinity Podcast Community, and engage with us on Instagram at ofdust underscore and divinity. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you, for you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Now.